I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is... Ancient Office Hours, at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 48 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I chatted with Dr. Deb Trusty, a lecturer in classics at the University of Iowa. Her research interests include undergraduate pedagogy and classics in the classroom, fringe reception of classics and mythology, Bronze Age Greek archaeology and material culture, Mycenaean ceramics, ceramic studies and analysis, ancient craft and food production and consumption methods, and ancient technologies. She enjoys video and board gaming, especially games that involve the ancient world, like Assassin's Creed Odyssey and Sid Meier's Civilization. You can follow her on her Twitch channel, which will be linked in the show notes. We discussed how her being a foodie led to her specializing in ancient cooking ware, about the need for an ancient version of the great British baking show, debate whether arts or science developed first, and I learned how she got science funding for the humanities. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy. Great. Thanks so much for joining me today. I want to jump right on into how did you get into classics and like, what on earth was it that just made you have to like learn more about this really ancient stuff that, you know, like most people are like, what is, what is that? I was lucky in uh, high school. I got to go to Peru, South America um, with a school trip and we walked the Inca Trail and realized there's a ton of stuff here that needs to like be studied and would be fun to learn more about. And wow, I'm just walking all over this stuff and that's weird. So I decided to go into archaeology, went to the University of Evansville go aces for archaeology and did not realize I probably should do my research ahead of time and maybe figure out what type of archaeology they offer. It's actually only classical archaeology. Um, And my brain didn't want to go down the like anthropology route. And so ended up taking ancient Greek my very first semester freshman year. Loved it. Um, And that led down this whole crazy path. Nice. Have never been to South America. So I totally recommend it's beautiful. Um, Inca trails a bit rough, but worth it once you get up to Machu Picchu and see the view. So maybe just like not a good starter hiking trail if you don't hike. No, we were really lucky. We had like porters and everything too, who were skinnier than you know, me, they probably weighed like 90 pounds, ran with all of our stuff, just up cliff faces and everything. I was just like, I'm never going to be that good at anything. Like they are good at that. So yeah, it was a very privileged experience on my part. Um, And yeah, just a beautiful country. 
Nice. Okay. That's really nice. Um, well, I'll log that down on things that I have to do in my ever expanding list of it is things a bucket to list, do. Man. Warning about the trains. The trains will go down the hill like seesaw almost or like, you know, pendulum Ooh. style. Ooh, I got real nauseous on those. Um, oh, well, I get motion sickness so easily. So maybe I'll yes, so avoid the train. Okay. Uh, I'll avoid the train. And if, <laughs> if you're listening and you want to do this, maybe if you get motion sick you should avoid the train as well yeah but i think archaeology like in general like you get a taste for a little bit of it and it just leads you down a path that you just can't stop yeah you know it's interesting i mean i know it's different for everyone i know for me it was the wonders of ancient Egypt, the mystery, you know, I got into like fifth grade and I was like, there is nothing as wonderful and amazing as ancient Egypt. And then ended up not doing Egyptology. Yeah. My mom was the same where she was like, wait, I thought you were doing South American archeology. span I was like, no, I'm going to Greece. Bye. (laughs) Greece must have some magnet, my friend. It does. I, it really does. I mean, if it's not Egypt, it's Greece or vice Mm -hmm. versa. Um, sometimes I hear Italy, but, but People usually, I, well, from, from my experience, I haven't heard people like start with Italy. They like come to it later. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I've noticed that too. If people like they, it's not, I wouldn't say a toilet bowl swirling effect, but more of a magnetism toward it. Yeah. Like you, you, you discover something else and then, and then you're like, oh wait, Rome's actually like, cool. Wait, they have this, that, and the other thing. And then they're like, okay, now I'm a Latinist. And you're like, oh yeah. Okay. I think. Yeah, as well, like just the vastness of how much has been studied, both Italy and Greece kind of lends itself more to people being like, well, let's look further into this and let's yeah, incorporate more of this. So maybe there's something there with the longevity of study leads more to more longevity. Uh, Yeah, probably, hopefully. So when your parents heard about this whole archaeology thing, you know, were they like, yes, go do it, have fun? Or were they like, did they get that look of terror where they're like, oh, my God, our child is going to be poor and have no money. And like, oh, my gosh, (laughs) there were both of those. I think my dad was more of the you're never going to have money. My mom, however, is more adventurous. um, And she was the one that went with me actually to Peru anyone that wants to chaperone a bunch of high school kids in Peru is crazy enough. Um, but she, she was the adventurous one. So she always was like, yes, go do the thing, do whatever makes you happy kind of thing. So um, my mom was all for it. My dad was more cautious. Understandable. I swear that's what dads are for, right? My mom was always like, follow your passions, honey. I don't care what you, I don't care what you do. She's like, you could be a ditch digger, but if you're happy doing it, I want you to be happy. And my dad was always exactly. like, no, 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 no. You need to like think about future and retirement and savings. And like, he was yeah. talking about like 401ks when I was like 10. And I'm like, yo, I hate math. I hate <laughs> working with finance and money and anything. So I was like, don't talk to me about that. I don't understand. I, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I think dads are like, okay, princess, we got to like shelter you and make sure you're going to be safe. And moms are like living vicariously through their daughters. Exactly. It's so. very special, interesting experience. It is is parenthood man i know nothing of it me neither i probably won't (laughs) for many years yeah but um okay that's good so you had one parent that was kind of like all right do the thing i'm on board one who was like understandably a little reserved and when you were like going through doing the thing did you have that moment of like why am i doing this way i feel like i'm gonna be poor it's so hard to do the thing the outside of the present day (laughs) (laughs) i mean like i think i still have these worries i'm a lecturer right now which has its own like set of instabilities and insecurities not nearly as much as adjuncts or phd students or anything like that but you know it's still you never know what's going to happen i mostly just like to pour all of my passion and energy into something um, and hope that it sticks and stupidly live by mottos that whatever, like, you know, don't leave it, leave it better than when you found it sort of thing. So I did this with my, I was in a sorority in, in undergrad. I did the same thing where it's like, okay, leave it better than when you found it, whatever you join, whatever you do, leave it better than when you found it. So that's always been my sort of focus as opposed to 
just trying to find the next job with the most money or the next thing with the most, but just like, just do what you're doing now. Be happy with it. Move along. Oh, for sure. That's a great mindset. And I'm curious, how did you end up going about like the process of choosing your specialty and like, you know, cause I know it's always a sort of, it's a big decision. I mean, you know, I was confronted as a young undergrad when they were kind of like, okay, there's a few tracks. You have to pick one right now. You have to do philology or, you know, they were kind of pushing me either toward that or art history. And I was like, um, is there something in between where I can just do like ancient history or civilization or like something that's not so language heavy or art heavy. And they were kind of like, um, sort of not really we could work with you you know so yeah how did you navigate that yeah that was a tricky one for like I knew I wanted to do archaeology knew that that was hands down pretty sure I wanted to be like like I wanted to teach archaeology which meant I had to do the PhD thing so then it turned into a Greece or Rome and ancient Greek was my first ancient language that I learned and I liked it a lot so I was like well, we'll stick with Greeks and see how it goes. And then that turned into college year in Athens. Um, My junior year, first semester, it was right after the Olympics. And I was just like, yeah, that's how old I am. And I was like, yes, this is going to be great. I'm going to end up in the middle of nowhere. And loved everything about college year in Athens, especially the instructors. Um, And I had a great one. Iphigenia Tornavitu, or Iphigenia Tornavitu, who is a Bronze Age archaeologist and excavates at Mycenae, Greece, and other places. And I loved everything about her. She was the happiest, greatest, funniest, most lovable person with the sassiest attitude ever. And Iphigenia, if you hear this, I'm sorry. And yeah, I was like, this is that passion that she had for Bronze Age archaeology was the thing that sold me on Bronze Age archaeology. So I decided to do that. And then from there, decided I want to do pottery, mostly because I'd always been really interested in pottery. But I decided to do cooking ware because it was the only thing that people weren't looking at at the Mycenae Museum. I worked at the Mycenae Museum with UC Berkeley and Kim Shelton for almost for about a decade. And no one was really looking at the cooking ware. Everyone was fawning over all the painted fine wares and everything and putting all that stuff together. And I was like, but we have all this cooking ware here and look at all these tripod feet. And what are we going to do with all this? And I just started putting it all together. And before I knew it, I'd assembled like 40, 50 pots and decided that was going to be my dissertation topic. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Also like, wow. Yeah. Cause I, you know, I've heard some interesting and very varied specialties for sure, but cooking where you're right. It's one that I haven't actively ever thought about like, wait, who do I know who like really does this? And you know, what, what notable things have come out about it. And I'm like, Oh, I can't remember the last time I I heard anything, which is super sad. Yeah. No one cares about cooking where, I mean, except for Julie Ruby, Gerilyn Morrison, and a couple of people at the Agora. And even then, I think some of them are moving into other directions as well. We just, they're not pretty. It's not sexy. So we'll move on. And that's sad. Well, it's super important though, because I was I was just at well, I was just at Mycenae last week. So we went into the little museum and I was looking at all the artifacts. And then I think like I came back to Athens and then went to the National Archaeological Museum or I did something with friends. And um we were looking, strangely enough, at the cooking ware. And one of my friends sort of astutely just went, Wait, that looks like some modern utensils and storage things. She was like, wait, wait like, is this, do do our things look like they do now? Because that's, we just modeled after the ancient world. And I just kind of went, I don't know. You know, I was like, I, I was like, you know, it's, it's funny. They, they'll look to me for the answers. And I'm like, I'm a classicist, but I don't specialize in everything about ancient Greek culture. Yeah. And that's the thing, like they have very similar things to us, but especially the Mycenaean period has these like 
so not the cycladic frying pans that we don't know what the heck they were used for, but the uh, they're they're like big trays and they've got little divots in them. It looks like a griddle. And so we'll actually, we've called it griddles. And it seems to be for like baking bread maybe or something. And so Julie Ruby and a couple others have done experiments to try and recreate what may have been cooked on there. Um, and yeah, it's just, it kind of has this like feel of flatbread almost cooking flatbread on the on a griddle really um and then yeah tripods like anything you're making soup you're making stews like that's not again the sexy part of cooking everyone wants to look at like homer's iliad where they're cutting up the meat after a sacrifice or after a feast or something and they're cooking like no one sits around homer doesn't sit around and it's like and then they made stew and everybody loved it and no one cares about that stuff, but it's important. And yeah, if you're going to recreate the past, how do you recreate it without how they cook, how they eat, how they make stuff? So I really appreciate cooking where just for that. And I also really like food. Yeah, I was going to ask, are, are you a foodie? So as part of you, like super happy you get to study like ancient cooking stuff because you're like, I'm a foodie. Yeah, one of my favorite classes actually to teach is uh food in ancient Mediterranean society because we have a feast at the end of the semester. I have students that work together on teams to recreate ancient recipes. And then, yeah, we have a feast at the end and we share it with everyone in the department. This is pre-COVID, obviously. Post-COVID, I'm actually supposed to teach it in the, slated to teach it in the fall. I don't know how we'll do it, but I really want my students, one, one team to sign up to do garum because I would love to not taste it but just see their disgusted faces as they try and make fermented fish sauce yeah i was talking to a friend about that the other day because i was just talking about sauce on like my utero and you know she kind of made a joke and she's like what if we ate like ancient greeks and i was like i think this would automatically be quite disgusting <laughs> no that's like what would yes man fish the ancient world had to have been so smelly <laughs> yeah 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 well you know I, I we've got people i know i i've heard of people studying like ancient sewage and other things where people's gross everything went um i haven't had the pleasure of talking to one on the podcast <laughs> if you're out there if you're an expert on like ancient sewage come talk to me poop techniques of antiquity please, please. but yeah no. no i think that would be so cool and I would think that class would be so exciting for like to, to sort of um, attract like interdisciplinary students. Like I was thinking um, I follow Seamus Blackley on Twitter and I was like, okay, but like archaeo baking is a thing. So I'm like, any archaeo bakers out there who want to take this class? Like that'd be so cool. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like let's, so yeah, there's a whole group that makes like, the breads. So we have a Roman bread recipe um, that they try and do. No one yet has tried to do a little stamp in the bread. I'm hoping that my next group gets eager enough to try stamping bread and having those nice divisions that you see in like the Pompeian preserved or on the uh, frescoes and everything. Yeah, that would be fun. Um, but we also do a couple of fishy, uh, fishy, uh, soups and sauces and things and then uh some cakes some honeyed cakes as well so i had a group that made some delicious honeyed cakes uh, a couple of years back and it was it was a really fun activity they they also then talk about like you know the process of making it from like grinding the grain or whatever it is from food prep all the way up to what type of people would have eaten this in what context. And so they talked a lot about leaving cakes on altars um, and the ritual use of cakes in addition to, you know, nutritional use. So it was, it was a really fascinating group of people, group of students and very fun study for sure. It sounds really fun. I wish I had a class where I could just sort of study ancient food and cook things. And I mean, okay, I joke because I don't, <laughs> I hate baking and cooking is like one of those things I do it because I'm like, I need to eat yep. or, you know, I'll stress cook, but I don't, 
I sometimes I enjoy it, but um, very rarely, yeah. I suppose. I just kind of do it because I need food. But no, that I would enjoy. Like if it's in the service of experimentation and recreating yeah. something ancient, I, I think I could get behind doing that. But I have what might be considered a uh, stupid question, but that's only because, you know, I've never studied like ancient cooking. So I'm sure that people in the audience would probably um, appreciate this. So when cooking and like making these stews and, you know, the ancient world you didn't have like these nice sort of like cast iron handles and these things so like when you heat all that metal up how do you not get burned when you're cooking because i'm like yeah. they didn't have like heating pads i mean they might have for all we know i mean we don't have like textile we don't have a lot of textile preservation mm. um so they could have from the looks of it there's like Oh, like you have braziers, for example, that so that you can carry the coals away from the fire itself so that you can control the heat a little bit better um, and not be subject to whatever open flame is happening. But instead you get like a much slower cook. And I think that's one thing to appreciate about ancient cooking is the process must have been much slower. It's not an immediate sort of like, let's throw this on the fire, but no, they're working with like coals, not the open flame. And so that's one thing to take into consideration. And then outdoor versus indoor cooking. Like we don't get a lot of indoor installations for cooking. So that's another issue of where, where is the cooking taking place? And so we might get into talking about like Assassin's Creed Odyssey and other things, but I'm always like, I was like recreations of the ancient world and like to go straight to the kitchen as the first place that I tend to look toward in order to kind of see what what do you think this kitchen looks like is there a room for a kitchen or is there um, a little bit more openness well now I'm very curious because I love Assassin's Creed do you think they did a pretty good job when you do get to go into some of these houses and markets and, and you see kind of their kitchen situation i do i definitely think they've got something going on there um a lot of it seems to be inspired from the displays that you see at the agora museum in athens the larger sort of stove which probably was a, a richer element to it but i think you also see those on delos as well some like larger stoves and inset kitchen equipment cooking equipment but Assassin's Creed Odyssey and Ubisoft does a really good job, I think, of, of researching what they can um, and recreating what they can. So the majority of the things that they have are actually terracotta rather than um, metal cooking vessels, which probably would have worked better as well. Cheaper, for one. And cooking-wise, you kind of get this, like, you, we can tell that, like, the flavor, it's almost like a cast iron skillet sort of thing where you don't want to clean it that you want to keep that like flavor over time that makes it a little bit better. Um, and I feel like cooking like terracotta cooking pots are the same in terms of the older they are, the more, more memory it has perhaps as well as more flavor it has to it. So I appreciate them for sticking with terracotta vessels instead of going metal, but yeah. And then they usually have you know, all the food scattered about. And there's usually one room, at least that I've, all the rooms that I've run into in Assassin's Creed, they they tend to have like a room that's specially designated for kitchens and cooking and everything. I don't think we necessarily get that as well in the archaeological record, that it's more of a movable or transportable sort of task that you have like, okay, access to water. I'm thinking of like the Oikos system and the Oikos setup that you have a, a corner where there's water or something um, or water access. And then there what may be a hearth, but really you could move the hearth out into and probably should move the hearth out into the courtyard so that you're not smoking up the rest of the house if the weather's nice. So thinking about like the portability of cooking is something that I've always been interested in as well. Hmm, that's really cool. So I remember from Assassin's Creed Odyssey how they how well they I felt that they did it. And and, and it's interesting how I, I'm sort of thinking it, it stands in stark contrast with how they sort of portrayed food and kitchen spaces in something like Assassin's Creed Origins, you know, like 
really different vibe, but like still going for that sort of, they're, they're very similar, but clearly different. Um, also I, it, it severely pains me to run through anything with food because every time I see it in the game and I see how delicious everything looks, it makes me hungry. And then I'm like, well, now I want to eat and not play my video game. So then, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a struggle. I can't play any of those uh, more like JRPG games where you're cooking and you have to go to the ramen place and cook. And I'm always like, oh, now I really want some ramen. That looks so good. Yeah, I'm glad that that's not like cooking mini games are not a part of Ubisoft's world. Not yet. <laughs> you say that and now they're going to do it. <laughs> oh, I know. Imagine. I know. Right. I'm a bit curious. So if we think about all the different representations of ancient, the ancient world, especially, especially like Greece in media, contemporary media, you know, it's like, why do we, I mean, maybe it's just cause it's not glamorous, but like, why do we just like never have people like in a kitchen? We don't see people cooking really. We just see the like food done or whatever. Yeah. We think of like symposiums, right. And like drinking yeah. parties and yeah. big feasts and Homer and yeah, we don't think, like, when's the last time there was anything that even showed a kitchen, you know? And mm-hmm. I'm thinking, am I wrong in thinking like HBO Rome was the last time we really saw anything Ooh. in a kitchen? Yeah, maybe, man, that was a good show too. And they did do a whole, like, we're not going to just feature the upper class we're going to feature the lower class too so we have polo and everyone and it's like yes this is like you're actually showing us what feels like a real living place and i think that's why i like assassin's creed so much too is because it shows us a real living what feels like a living space as opposed to here's what caesar did the other day and here's what pericles cares about and here what did sophocles write you know, the other day, like, I'll appreciate that. I love it for its intrinsic cultural value and its beauty. However, I always feel like there's something more. It might be why I like Euripides plays. Euripides tends to feel like, tends to feature more servants and maids and tutors and common chorus members. And maybe that's why I like him a little bit more. That and his desire to put some humor in a tragic situation. Yeah, yeah, no. But yeah, I, I think yeah. that background view is a necessary part of understanding the past, and just studying like one author is obviously a bad idea. So why is studying just one part of the population not also a bad idea? So now I want to ask, like, you know, is there a scenario in which it would make sense to have some kind of family cooking scene or or cooking anything included in like, you know, kind of like an action TV show like Rome, like, like they did it and it was good, but it was definitely part of like the bigger, it tells the whole story, you know, you have to get through all this stuff and the the wars and like, you know, could we do justice to it by like trying to put it in somewhere or like, do we need our own like ancient version of like the great British baking show? Oh my God. That would be an amazing show. Uh, I think the main reason, though, that we just don't see it is because it's such a female-oriented task. And that's really, like, the reason that none of our ancient authors really talk about it as much. We can, like, picture symposium scenes pretty easily. We can picture all these other ones because we have Plato's symposium. We can picture Pericles standing and giving an oration because we have Pericles' funeral oration. But we don't have Yaya in the kitchen slaving over a hot meal for her son before he goes off to work in, I don't know, the armory or whatever. Like the stuff that we got from Polo in Rome was just, yeah. I won't, I won't say it's like lightning in a barrel, but it was pretty good and just funny. And the two of them got along really well. And yeah, we need something like that, I think. But obviously Rome only went for two seasons. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. And yeah, they just rushed that second season so much that it just was a bummer. Maybe now they could do it with all the streaming stuff out there. But. I mean, so if we were 
gonna create this ancient cooking show would it be baking like like actual like bake off or would we want to do like what is it paula dean uh normal just you oh, cook yeah, yeah. whatever you want like 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 do we open it up and do we just like have all the different styles and things you could cook or do we limit it to like ancient baking i think it should be uh, so i think you should just like here are the food the ingredients that are available we don't have any new world food you don't have any of this and you just take some chefs that only are used to working with whatever and say no no you're only limited to this. And also we're not very sure if like some of this would have been exactly like mm, those vegetables, like probably not the same type of vegetable, but it works. It'll be fine. But if you look, try and look up like spices from the ancient world, we're not sure what some of those are. And it's like, well, we hear this word describing a spice, but we don't know which spice that actually is in the modern world. So only giving them like a limited range of spices, ingredients, and then saying like, look, if you want to make something with flour in it, then you have to grind it yourself. You have to grind that flour yourself. Here is the wheat and here's the grain, but you're off on your own to do everything else. Like that sort of challenge would be interesting to me. Ooh, I think that would be really fun. Um, also, what you said about the spices just totally reminded me of a conversation I was having with my Indian classmate the other day. And we were talking about this idea of like curried chicken because I was like, oh, I love curried chicken, blah, blah, blah. I make this great recipe when I'm back home in the States. Mm -hmm. And I was telling him, I was complaining about how I couldn't make it here in Athens because I couldn't find the right one, the right spice. Uh -huh. And he was like, well, what curry do you use? And I'm like, well, what do you mean? What curry do I use? I go to the store and I get curry powder. Isn't curry yeah. powder just curry powder? And he just goes, there's like 92 different curries. So he's like, <laughs> so, he's, so he was like, yeah, what Brits and Americans call curry powder. He was like, we have no freaking clue what you're talking about. And he's yeah. like, ha, it's a spicy, it's a mild. And I was like, what, 92? Yeah, I'm the same with basil. People are like, oh, this is a really minty basil. And this is another, like a different type of basil. And like, I think I grew chocolate basil in my garden and never tried it. It was supposed to taste like chocolate, but it, it died. So whatever, I might try again. But yeah, it's that kind of thing of like, how many different basils are there in the world? And I don't know which one to use for what. And yeah, I'm not good when it comes to that sort of stuff. But it does make me think about like the past and they had their own vocabulary for spices and for flavorings and for everything. And so now that we're much more of a homogenized world, I suppose, or at least closer to it, we don't get those, uh, yeah, the 90 different types of curry kind of thing that America's just like, no, no, go get the curry powder over there. And it's just the one in the entire store, just sad little canister. And you're like, that's curry. And you're like, yeah, no, like, no. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so, so I guess like in talking, uh, see, now we're talking about so much food that I'm, I know I'm really hungry. My stomach is growling. I know. It's like, I'm getting hungry. It's like, it's Pavlovian. If I talk about food, I'm automatically like, mm, where's the food? Mm -hmm. I can't even, uh, see, this is why I'm like, I'm so glad I don't study ancient food and ancient cooking. Oh. Cause then I would, I would literally be 300 pounds because I would never stop eating. Well, then you got to figure out like when to schedule a class like that too. That was the other thing that I was like, well, I'm not going to have it at like eight in the morning because I don't want students that are like going to eat their breakfast. I also don't want it at lunch when students are hungry. Cause then we're talking about food. I don't want it late in the evening. Like, when do you have a class like this on food? When is an appropriate time? I just don't know. I, I don't either. I mean, I mean, the nice part about universities is that, you know, since most of them have those nice classes that are kind of like, you could schedule them on the hour, every hour. I'm like, you could do like the in between. So you could do like two in the afternoon. So like, if you, if we were in Europe, obviously they don't even eat until like three in the afternoon, let's yeah. be real. But like in yeah, the yeah. States, since most people eat around noon, you could be like, well, it's on the student to bring a snack or you eat just have to time eat before. Or... Cause you know, you're going to have like a food class at two yeah. or, or one or something, you know? 
there's only so much planning you can do for that like yeah plus they also have their own scheduling like block schedules so i ended up with a three o'clock time which i think is perfectly acceptable but yeah i didn't want like an early morning when i'm probably already like skipping breakfast and hungry and yeah, so I think like really it'll be a fun class for sure. But yeah, food, ancient food, uh, ancient food. We just don't yeah. get enough of it. I would love more <laughs> studies on ancient food, ancient food, modern food. Well, I mean, in talking about kind of the non purely academic side of food, which I'm very much for as well, thinking sort of about, you know, alternative academia, alt ac, or just even not going into academia at all. I mean, you know, like what what kind of jobs could you get if you wanted to like if you were interested in like ancient cooking but like you didn't want to go into academia yeah huh i definitely know museums would be an interesting way to go i'm sure there are like museums on special topics like that that would be an interesting way to go for sure also i always feel like the study of botany archaeobotany archaeo anything like as opposed to going down the academic route, I wonder if you, you know, lab work kind of stuff could be an interesting way of, I have students that always want to be doctors and then they decide, no, I was wrong about that. And then still want to bring in some element of the science world into their, their work. And so I'm always a fan of students that want to learn archaeobotany or archaeogeology or um, any of the sciences that bring in some more paleo could Hmm. like would you would someone have the skills to maybe go into like chef school could you could you actually become a chef if you were just really interested and got in because you loved history could you do some sort of you know major thing that let you like I wonder if you could go into the school like you could say like my you know senior year I did a thesis project uh, in classics in or in anthro or in you know ancient civilizations that was recreating an ancient recipe and now i'm getting into i want to go into culinary art school and use that as sort of a portfolio builder i could see that i have students that will do that for like video games that they'll do a honors thesis on a type of video game or an independent study on a video game that they would create or be interested in set in the ancient world or something like that and then they use that as a portfolio to get a job later on so um i think the same would apply there anything to make you look a little bit odd (laughs) like you know you still go on to med school but you minored in ancient civ and you took all these classes in ancient medicine and ancient mental health and ancient this and ancient that and people are like why do you know latin that's interesting tell us more and before you know it you've opened a whole like conversation and made yourself look very unique and interesting as a result i think that could be a good way of going about it if you know that your field is going to be competitive make yourself stand out with something weird and crazy like the ancient world yeah, I think that's the best. I mean, you know, just with the prevalence of Latin everything, Latin words, I was like, I don't think it could be anything more helpful than learning some Latin and then going to like law or medical school because they use so much Latin. They both, in those they both do really like, yeah, a lot of schools have like the medical technical terminology courses and it's just taught by classics professors and classics grad students because it's all Greek and Latin. We have it here at my university. We have it. I think a a legal Latin would be a good class to create in the future to help students get in, get that, you know, law school bump by knowing their terms before they even get to law school. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, hey, I think that's uh, that's what I love about classics. It really is so interdisciplinary. You just you can. Honestly, you can take any class and you could apply it and it would probably really help you and give you skills for yeah, like all these different things. And almost anything that you think of for like the ancient or the modern world, you could probably do in the ancient world, right? Like you want to learn 
you're, you're interested in modern psychiatry, well, study ancient psychiatry and see like how messed up that was. And that'll make you appreciate your field a lot more. So um, yeah, mental health in the ancient world, like what's that like? And writing an honors thesis on that then shows that you've done something interesting with a degree in two different fields. So yeah, the interdisciplinariness of it. I think we often set a lot of importance on understanding past things. The precedent is set. And so let's understand that so that we can predict the future. And so classics as a result is just an inherent part of any of those major studies. Yeah, no, for sure. And like, well, when trying to find something kind of specialized, like, you know, ancient cooking, most universities aren't probably gonna, I mean, mine didn't offer anything like that. So, you know, I don't know if there's like an actual answer to this, but like, you know, how do we sort of do a better job of really like showing a lot of these, you know, classics courses are so interdisciplinary. So like everyone should have an offering in like this, that, or the other thing, like, are there um, unique classes that like every school should have beyond just, you know, your standard like translation, because everyone will learn that at some point or, because um, oh, you know each college has such different offerings I mean what Mizzou had we might have had like one unique class that was like a special topics course and then um, I talked to some other friends at other universities and they'd be like oh we don't have anything like that and I'm like why what it's nothing standardized obviously because you know not you know professors are unique obviously but I just feel like we should have more than just your standard ones right like yeah but- we always have myth right? Every school, I think everywhere has a myth class. Everywhere has like a Greek literature and translation and Roman literature and translation. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I'm much more on the the side of let's see how interdisciplinary we can be. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, classics and cinema course should be a standard. Food in ancient Mediterranean society should be a standard. Um, And what's my other favorite one that I... You could do like theater, right? Like drama. Yeah, that's the other thing. That's what I, yeah. And that's honestly like talking to each of the departments, it -hmm. needs to be something that's done more. I'm obviously still a young scholar, but I have noticed how, you know, you're in the classics department and yet the theater is putting putting on a play that I didn't even hear about that's inspired by, you know, it's a retelling of the ancient fates, and wait, what are you doing retelling that myth and not like just saying, hey, classics, we understand that you guys do this stuff. Maybe you want to come and help us talk about how Zeus should be represented on stage. That sort of collaboration, I think, would be more exciting. And unfortunately, it just takes someone to reach out and tell people like, hey, I'm here if ever you want to talk about this thing. So Theater is one of the departments that I've wanted to talk more to. Cinema is another one. Computer science is another one because of video, my interest in video games as well. And then uh, creative writing and English is my other one that I try and tap into occasionally because I like to have classes on retelling ancient myths and things. So yeah, it's that sort of stuff of we just got to be more vocal and reach out more. And I think the possibility is there then once we do that. Ancient science, that's the other one that I was thinking of. Ancient like engineering, technology, science. Not necessarily like science, like let's sit around and study philosophy all day because I don't enjoy that. But like hands-on, let's try and make a working kiln, for example. Oh, like STEMI stuff, STEM. Yeah, like hands-on, we got, we're going to make a kiln an ancient pottery kiln. You guys are going to make pottery. You guys are going to make the kiln. We're going to try and fire it using ancient, what we know of the ancient world and archaeological studies. That sort of stuff would be really fun to do. Hands-on, engaging, interdisciplinary, all that stuff. That's, that's where our classes, I think, need to focus more. No, I totally agree. And I keep saying, I think classes need to find a better job. Because like, it is quite easy to 
make the interdisciplinary argument for, you know, like related humanities. So like it, to me, it's not like that far of a jump to be like, oh yeah, theater. Oh, you're staging like my school staged like a, uh, it was really ambitious actually. They did a one woman show and it was Clytemnestra, but it was just one oh, chicky doing it. And they staged it like at, in the theater department and they didn't reach out to classics at all for any help, but somehow someone was like, oh, we should invite all of the people in the classics department. Oh, and then if, if you give it to the professors, like make it into like extra credit, like go see the play and you'll get extra credit in your class. And I'm like, so someone clearly thought that we would like to see this for extra credit because we study this, but no one reached out when you're staging and writing and making play. Yeah, because we're here. We'll just use us. Like HBO does it. Ubisoft does it. They they all like hire specialists to do stuff, right? Yeah. So yeah, we're here too. Like that idea of collaboration and and assisting, but you know, I say that and then I don't even reach out to people when I should. So I mean, it's hard. You know. I mean, there's like schedules and other things at play for sure, oh, yeah. but COVID. It, right. Exactly. But you know, no, yeah. I think it's important, especially with, but especially after COVID with how like digitized we have to be. Cause I'm always saying, you know, I'm very pro like experimental things in classics, like let uh, let's bring in STEM. Cause I think, you know, one of the arguments to be made is like, it shouldn't be STEM. It should be STEAM because we should put that A. It should be STEAM, there, yeah. You know, so, but like we do such a terrible job of like talking about it or like actually making a case like, because, you know, with those like quantifiable sciences, it's always like, okay, but like, okay, you need to like prove to me what value is this thing going to bring me, which is why they get all yeah. the funding because you can quantify the sciences. I'm like, I, I have a friend, I have two of my best friends ever, they're, they're engineers you know, frequently they get this sort of like, can you quantify the humanities? And I'm like, uh, not really. Like, it was like, I could try to find something yeah. within humanities, but like, you know, it's like, what do you almost tell people when you're like, you know, fighting for all the funding and they're like, okay, can you quantify what you're doing for me <laughs> in a way yeah, that, exactly. you know, like, what's the impact level yes. of this? And you're just like, um sure yeah this was hard for me too because I for my dissertation actually got a national science foundation grant which was great and very helpful and allowed me to bring more science into my dissertation as a result so that part was good but then the like end report where I had to say like what I did with the money and what the results were that I was like well I maybe identified some fabric groups but i can't tell you a hundred percent because it's ancient materials and that's really i think i found the source but i'm not really sure which honestly i don't know any science grant report that is totally you know correct in every way and it's like yes we totally definitively proved x unless it's i do this with my students a lot actually where we'll read something like uh there's the articles on whether or not the temple of apollo at delphi was seated on a fissure and if it was leaking some sort of gas from you know these crevices and is this a true thing is that what was making pythia erratic and and gibberish and speaking gibberish and just being generally insane was she high basically the whole time and there's a couple of really good articles on it, but the end result on all of them is we don't know because this is set in the past and we don't have readings from that area from the past. We can't recreate that. So I then asked my students who are then frustrated having read these articles and are like, wait, this didn't tell us anything. I was like, yes, but how many of you read articles for your chemistry class or for your psychology class? And it does have complete and conclusive results. And they're like, well, none of them. I'm like, yeah, so classics and archeology span aren't any different. We're, we're in that same kind of like, this just opened a whole new can of questions as opposed to 
answering them and that's fine but that's why we shouldn't make these distinctions between archaeology classics humanities and the sciences because then it makes us think we need to have these conclusive results for everything when we never we never do it's it's okay not to have conclusive results it's all right well, it's interesting because I'm thinking about a lot about this. I've been thinking for the past few days a lot about the intersection of kind of science and arts and humanity. And it occurred to me because I was actually having a, like a phone conversation with my best friend. And right now she's doing an MA at Notre Dame in theology. Indiana. Yeah. And so, nice. you know, I don't, I'm, I, I don't know much about theology. It's not, it's not my jam, but like, you know, cool. We'll talk about it. But I, I, and, and it's so funny. Cause I, I love how just like, you know, the, the randomest, most interesting questions come out of like random shit that you say. So, uh, I was kind of pseudo kidding. I was just, I was, I was joking around and I said, oh, I feel a little, uh, tricked because the program I'm in now, when I researched it initially, I, it, I saw like master's program MA and Southeast European studies, blah, 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 blah. And then when I got here, they were like, oh no, you're going to come out with a master of science, not a master of arts. And I remember I kind of pitched a fake hissy fit and I was like, no, I was in it for the MA. Oh my goodness. I'm all about <laughs> the arts and humanities. I was like, no, when did they trick me into being a master of science? I was like, I don't do science. I don't like science. It's terrible. And then she said the, the wildest thing. She just said, Oh my gosh, wait, when did we first make the distinction between when something became an art and something was purely a science? And I was like, wait, what do you mean by that? And she was like, well, I'm getting an MA in theology, but she was like, but theology way back, even when theology became a thing was called like the mother of all sciences. So she's like, well, theology was a science, but you would call theology an art today. So she was like, so is it was everything originally a science? And then when we just decided things should be like arts and humanities, we just like created that. And I was like, no, but I was like, but I would think arts and humanities came first and then science, because I was like, well, we couldn't ever really quantify like data really the way we do now until much later. So wouldn't science come second, but she's like, again, she's like all academia came from philosophy and the first philosophy was like theology. And she was like, and it was a, she was just called science. And I was like, yeah. Oh my God. So kind of off of that argument we were having where we were like, is the chicken and the egg question? Yeah. I was like, yeah. well, as someone who also kind of looks at all these intersections, what do you think was art art first or was science first? Oh man, I, this is definitely, it's <laughs> hard, right? Um, yeah. Cause I go back to like, all right, let's look at when like science first speak, like science methods first started developing in ancient Greece. I'm not going to say like the near East. I'm not going to say other place, Mesopotamia, like they're doing their own thing much earlier than the Greeks are doing their thing. So, but what about what's going on with the Greeks? I'm more familiar with them. And you look at the idea of, yeah, philosophy, the love of wisdom or the love of sophos or like it's the love of that thing of just of curiosity, basically, and answering the world around you. So if it's all about philosophy, then I like to take more of an Aristotle approach, really, who, yeah, he wrote on biology and he wrote on the way the world works he understood astronomy and he understood all these things but he also wrote about rhetoric and poetry and i i take that approach of like i don't think these should be divided at all um that dividing them has actually hurt us more than it's helped us um because yeah there you can incorporate science whatever it is into any level of anything and yeah the first on the first myths and the first religious ideas are trying to understand the world around us. Isn't that science? Like that's science, trying to understand the world around us, trying to understand why the sun goes up and down. Okay, so it goes up and down because we know now that the earth revolves a certain way and rotates around the sun in a certain way, but why couldn't it be a horse drawn chariot? What's wrong with that? 
some days seem longer than others. Maybe that's like because of Helios and not because of my perception of time. So, you know, it's that kind of thing of like, who made this division? It's like daylight savings time. Who did this? And why have you done this to us? I don't like it. And yeah, I don't want to like get into like harpsy. I don't know. Oh yes, we could get quite we could get quite polemic about it if we let ourselves. But right? like you don't want it, so it's like no, we want the easier answer. But it's yeah, we want to like divide, right? We always yeah. want to divide and sort them. And maybe it's our lizard brains that want to sort this and that and make logic out of everything. But I like to teach and focus on like the middle ground. Mm-hmm that things aren't black and white, but things are just different gradients of gray. And we've got to be comfortable with that uncomfortable feeling. Yeah. Cause that's where a lot of really interesting things lie is in the gray. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, you know, it'd be nice if we were more gray. Cause I mean, you know, I was just sort of, jo- I'll take, I'll take the degree for sure. But you know, I was like, I know it doesn't really mean anything. You, you get fancy letters behind your name, but I was just like, come on. I was like, MS, come on. It's like, it's, it sounds, it sounds weird. Like, come on, where's my MA? Yeah. But well, and like some places offer like a BA in anthro and a BS in anthro. And I'm just like, the only difference that I can see from your requirements is that you're asking for a few more labs and that's really it. And if it really just comes down to a couple of, hours in the lab separates between a BA and a BS, then just make it a bachelor's degree. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know. It, yeah. Flexibility in education is more where I lay mm-hmm. when I think about like, do we need all these requirements or should we just foster creativity and the desire to explore and make your own sort of degree as it were like chase the things that you're interested in not necessarily what you have to do I agree well you know if we could have just like a universal masters and not m-a-m-s then I would happily be like I I don't want a specific letter I just 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 say I have a master's please so well, and then we have like, okay, PhD is a doctorate in philosophy. I know nothing about, I suck at philosophy. I dropped that class in undergrad. Like I am not a doctorate in philosophy. I have a doctorate in the love of learning. Can I have that instead? Oh, like, yeah. but not the modern conception of philosophy because Kant can suck it. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> I know none of that stuff. No, mo- I'm going to, I'm going to different, go on a limb and just be like, yeah, no one does. Like how many PhDs out there literally suck at philosophy. I always sucked at philosophy. I hated it. My class was so boring. <sighs> it was the first thing that I was like, nope, nope, not going to do that. So yeah, that was one of the, that was my th- freshman year class for me that I was like, uh-uh, we're not doing this. I'm not. No, no. Mm-mm. But then good place came along and oh. that is a much better way to learn philosophy. Yes. No, there are so many better ways. So I'm going to leave this up to the audience. You guys uh, tell us what you think, but did, you know, did, did, did arts come first? Did science, should there not be a division? So to end sort of the interview portion, I've got a couple of last questions for you. Number one is when you were an undergrad or in grad school, did you go to office hours? that's a really good question I don't think I did I think I rarely went to office hours and that's bad on me now that I oh man I need to I need to check myself before I tell my students now that you should go to office hours all the time okay that's okay well since you didn't go to office hours yourself as a professor now on the other side why is it important? Why should students go to office hours? So that is where you get to kind of learn where your um, interests are. Cause you can kind of see, do I, do I like this world that this person's living in? If I want to go on and be an academic is, am I liking their world? But also just for the practical nature of listening to another perspective on how to improve yourself. They're not experts. I'm not an expert, but it's another perspective on this path to being a better, whatever, being a better writer, being a better scientist, being a better 
whatever it is that you want to be. Um, it's kind of like the reason to study abroad, right? That the more you expose yourself to everything, the different perspectives, the different ideas, the better your, your outlook is going to be, the better you're going to make informed decisions. So it's just a chance to meet one more person in this whole big world that we live in. Yeah. And since you didn't attend as a student, do you have a favorite memory of what conversation or something of something in office hours as a professor? Um, one of my very first students actually uh, ended up just coming at this university, the current university I'm at, would just keep coming back occasionally and ended up interviewing me for a kind of freshman blog sort of thing where it's like, what do you want freshmen to know? And what do you think it would be good for freshmen to know? And I was like, this is my first semester at this university. I don't even know what I know. Like, how do I know what to do? But it was a nice little like, and that student has since graduated and wrote me and said that he's in law school now. And thank you for the little thing. So it's not like building a friendship, even when I'm not your professor anymore, that's just really nice to have. And so it creates a little bit more community in the world that you're in at that time or the world that I'm in at that time. So that's why I, I love office hours. I wish students would come more. Yes. Oh, well, I hope they come more for you. So uh, at the end of each podcast, I ask if each guest will read Percy Shelley's Ozymandias. And then as soon as you've read it, if you could just give us your you know, initial quick thoughts on like, how does this poem make you feel? Why do you think it stands out? Like, why do we place such importance on it? Is it an important poem? Just stuff like that. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I love it. All right, here we go. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert near them on the sand half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. 
round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Man, I love archaeology. I just love archaeology. Like that just makes me think of the impermanence of everything. But mostly like, what's this going to look like when it's gone? What's my city going to look like when people are gone? What's that? Like, I always am curious about what will remain and hopefully it's good things and not just a chunks of metal and chunks of stone. Couldn't have put it better myself. Yeah. I think it's a very political poem by Shelley. Definitely. You know, the ephemeral nature of political power, all power, you know, would this King be remembered if he didn't have an artisan to make a statue of himself? Probably not. Yeah. Yeah. So many nameless names out there. Exactly. Exactly. You know, you can't, you you know, you you need the little people. It's kind of like a a team effort. Like no, I alone can fix it. The last question I really love to challenge my guests with is um, if you think about the poem and then you think about modern society, do we have like a modern Ozymandias? Like, is there something that we think is like, oh, so amazing and great that might last forever but like realistically in like 200 years a thousand years whatever will we look back and just be like what were we thinking like that was the worst shit in the world yeah. of course it's not gonna last internet i feel like it's gonna evolve some way i always think of the world before this is me being you know a millennial a, an early millennial i guess uh yeah i was born in 82 so grew up with the internet grew like it came into my I remember the day we got it who remembers that now no one so I'm very much my world is revolved around technology far too often Uh, it's how I met my husband it's how I ended up most of the places that I am internet man I think it's something's gonna happen something's gonna I don't think it's gonna go away but I think it's going to transform in some other way that we just can't foresee at this time Yeah, for sure. No, I think that's a great answer. Great answer. So I will let the audience sort of uh, ponder your words of wisdom as I thank you once again for joining me on the podcast. And, you know, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you. This was very enjoyable. Oh, good. I'm glad. Well, you know, I always have fun doing these. So yeah, I hope, you know, we can have you back in some capacity doing something else. Let me know. I'm here. Yes. It was really, really great. Thank you, Lexi. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.